Our scripture passage is from 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 17 through 37. The king of Syria sent his supreme commander, his chief officer, and his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. They came up to Jerusalem and stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. They called for the king, and Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to them. The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending, that you rebel against me? Look now, you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff, which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. And if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you commit fighters on them. How can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this place without word from the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Then Eliakim, son of Elkiah, and Shebna, and Joah, and said to the field commander, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. But the commander replied, Was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things, and not to the men sitting on the wall who, like you, will have to eat their own filth and drink their own urine? Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern. Until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey. Choose life and not death. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for he is misleading you when he says, The Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his hand, his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Zephyrim, Hena and Iva? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people remained silent and said nothing in reply, because the king had commanded, Do not answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph the recorder, went to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him what the field commander had said. Okay, amen. Um, I too was blessed last Sunday with Pastor Steve Allen's message, especially its connection to the covenantal love we had been uh, covering. Uh, today we return 
to our 2021 opening series based on our church key verses. So in First uh, Thessalonians, we see those three virtues, right? Faith, hope, and love. And we're devoting one series each. Uh, the titles, the three messages that we spent on work produced by faith, and then three different messages on labor prompted by love. I just uh, thought you could take a glance at the titles. We focus uh, now on the clause, endurance inspired by hope in Christ Jesus. Uh, I'm trying to stick to um, certain major emphases that I shared at our last retreat, which, <laughs> believe it or not, occurred about a year ago. Um, faith as our unconditional trust uh, in God, Allah Abraham, uh, and love between follower of God and follower of God, exemplified by Jonathan and David. Uh, and, and then hope, hope pointing towards our responsibility uh, to the people of this world. Um, that those of us who possess an undying hope in an eternal future are called in turn uh, to offer that same hope to a dying world. Uh, at the retreat, uh, we looked at a negative example of someone who did not want to share uh, that hope with people who needed it very badly. Uh, Jonah was the reluctant prophet who fled God's call to preach to the hateful Ninevites, which incidentally, Nineveh was the capital of the aggressor nation of Assyria, which we're looking at today. And so God had to pursue Jonah with the same unrelenting love that he had for the Ninevites. Uh, when Jonah finally caved, uh, and went, his preaching of judgment against the Ninevites produced an amazing response of repentance and salvation. Eight words, just said eight words, and there were 120,000 converts. Yet, Jonah remained angry and begrudged the Ninevites uh, the mercy and hope that God had shown them. Uh, the first message uh, of this series is not actually directed uh, to uh, salvation through the gospel. Uh, I first wanted to consider a broader scope of what it, hope in God entails. I'm hoping, pardon the pun, to contrast the hope that God gives us with the hope that the world offers. So hope in God, the options of hope that the world uh, touts. Uh, there are a variety of hopes and desires I think that the world tries to inculcate in its people, and we'll be surveying some of them today and in the coming messages. Um, title today's sermon is Hoping for the Best. It suggests that everyone hopes uh, for the optimal outcome. And this is true even when the circumstances put things in doubt. We still kind of say this to each other, right? Let's just hope for the best. Even if it's like unrealistic or wishful thinking, kind of shrug our shoulders and say, let's just hope for the best, right? Um, and you know, through this Hezekiah narrative, I want to contrast uh, what the world hopes for compared to what uh, God offers us. Right? And I believe that the, sometimes actually the best hope, what the best is, is not the most practical or the most definite, or even realistic. Maybe not exactly what we would choose or prefer, but it's best because, you know, God defines that hope for us. Okay, let's jump in. Uh, the story of Hezekiah is generally an encouraging one. Although he stumbled at the end of his life and allowed envoys from Babylon to 
get a tour of the palace and the temple. Um, mostly throughout his royal tenure, uh, Hezekiah consistently and sincerely depended upon God many times. He's considered one of the most faithful sons of David to, ever, uh, to have ever ruled over Judah. And one of his most definitive victories uh, in God related to the unsuccessful siege of Jerusalem by the imperially minded Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. That's our story. This militantly aggressive nation was hegemonic during this time. Uh, in fact, Assyria had just uh, had taken down about a decade earlier the entire northern kingdom uh, of Israel. It proceeded to wreak havoc uh, all around, and eventually uh, Assyria set its sights on Judah. Hezekiah did his best to battle Sennacherib, but due to the latter's prowess, um, Hezekiah had to submit to a large tribute, paying a large tribute, which necessitated removal of some of the gold by which Hezekiah had adorned God's temple. Uh, so when Sennacherib sends his supreme commander and the field commander and all, all this, this huge army to besiege Jerusalem, the outlook from a worldly perspective for Hezekiah was very, very grim. grim. Yeah. Indeed, in the taunting speech that the field commander delivered, uh, we find the main theme to be what? Despair. He wants to sow despair in the king's officials, in the people uh, on the city wall, and, and everyone uh, in the city of Jerusalem. I think the field commander is rather eloquent in his uh, repudiation of any hope for the residents of Jerusalem to escape the powerful hand of his master. Uh, within the address, there are a number of what I will call uh, avenues or lanes of hope, avenues of hope, that um, he uh, argues that the people typically turn towards to, um, that they follow, but that are not available here. And he dismantles all of these in an effort to kind of eviscerate any courage or hope that the Israelites would be rescued. So I'm going to organize my sermon around these worldly hopes that are dashed and then conclude with the singular hope that uh, uh, in God that Hezekiah actually commits himself to. So the field commander sets the stage with the opening line on what are you basing this confidence of yours? So to me, I'm going to do the, uh, this operative question. That's in the backdrop. What are the avenues of hope, confidence? First, he talks about resources, right? Resources. Are you hoping in your resources, Jerusalem? Well, they're not going to help you. Next, uh, allies. Who's going to? Who are you depending on? Who's going to come help you? Which is it? Egypt? Is it? Um, is it Philistia? And who's going to come to to your rescue? And then he he like under undermines uh, what I'm calling religiosity. That's like a big part, right? It's not only faith in God, but it's more um, kind of faith in any god. Right? Your religious practices, your sacrifices, they're meaningless. They didn't help anybody else, and they're not going to help you. And then what I'm calling reasonability. Right? Uh, I'll, I'll get into this more, but you know, he kind of talks up this, like, let's, let's work this out. Come on. You know, we're good people. You guys are good people. Why do you have to you know, drink your own filth and your <laughs> kind of thing, right? You can, you can eat drink, you know, fresh water, right? Poland spring, if you, if you just kind of, you know, 
don't delay the inevitable. So all of these kind of practices and, and perspectives, approaches, I think, serve as kind of uh, alternate avenues of hope. And they work many a time. That's why they're so ingrained in us. That's why the field commander can talk so, uh, I think, effectively uh, towards this. And that's why we relate to them uh, in our time. And they're not mutually exclusive with God, you know, all the time. But here it is. And I think ultimately they are. Right? So I'll try to unpack that. Uh, the first, then, is this uh, resources. Um, in verse 20, uh, part B, he, uh, part A, he talks about strategy. You guys are relying on strategy and military strength. Right? In geopolitics, military might, uh, troop strength, weaponry, skill level, all that kind of stuff. Um, and strategy, right? In fact, Hezekiah kind of uses a strategy at first. He Remember, if you, if you look at like the Second Chronicles, uh, the sister passage in Second Chronicles, it says that Hezekiah dammed up uh, these aqueducts. So he was trying to kind of uh, prevent the Assyrians from having easy access to a water supply to kind of, you know, uh, hinder or hamper their, their, their efforts. Yeah. You know, many of us, many people put their hope in resources financial resources, intellectual capital, human resources, relational connections, what have you, right? And that, like, like he says, it gives us confidence, it gives us hope, right? But he's saying here that those are empty words. You don't really have those resources. They're not going to help you, Hezekiah. You can't avail yourself of them. Anyone can claim to have a resource advantage, but the truth might be very different. And I think America has been so confident for 200 plus years because of its amazing natural and human and uh, intellectual resources. You know, we've had so much and it's been, you know, head and shoulders above other countries. And that's has added to our, you know, our arrogance, our pride, our hope, our confidence in ourselves. Right. But once adversity sets in, once you start depleting your supply, you know, hope can start to, you know, take a downward turn. You know, I, I didn't read specifically, but I'm sure some of you are uh, maybe well-versed at least, maybe even in the thick of, of this kind of um, some of the uh, stock wars, um, <laughs> shorting and all that related to GameStop and Robinhood, that, that company. You know, and, and, and I've read, a, I think, a couple of places where people that have lost everything, right? They've lost hope completely. I think I read about one suicide related to it, yeah. Uh, resources are, are good. God sometimes gives us resources, right? But they're not meant to be our final hope. Second, uh, second avenue of hope is to find an ally or a benefactor or a partner who come to our aid. This is uh, common enough. Right? And, and it could be a good thing. Uh, the commander says, on whom are you depending that you rebel against me? He's saying, what surrounding nation? What, what, what kind of mercenary army? What deal can you make, Hezekiah, that will uh, stop, um, uh, that will repel the, uh, the invading Assyrian army? Yeah. Who's going to try to you know, help you out so that you know, the Assyrian forces have to be maybe 
uh, split or, or divided. Yeah. I think he uh, assumes that Egypt is the most likely kind of helper. I, I, I tried to read up on it, and I don't think that Hezekiah ever actually depended on Egypt. Now, previous, his forefathers, previous kings did, and, and they, I think they were the, probably the, the strongest um, nation other than Assyria at the time. But <laughs> I really like this, uh, this clever metaphor that, that uh, the field commander says he he calls Egypt a splintered reed of a staff which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. He's not impressed with Egypt, yeah. and he says if you depend on Egypt, you're only hurting yourself. Now this could be just typical trash talk from a pagan general, but there's wisdom I find in this vitriol. Yeah. Looking to human assistance alone in a time of great need cannot provide the solution we crave or we need. Human beings, uh, institutions, nations, uh, we're finite and, and imperfect. You know, even religious leaders right, uh, are, are not trustworthy ultimately. You know, all of these human kind of means... It, you think about it, they're, they're made of people just like you and me. And we know how imperfect we are, how sinful uh, we can be, how limited we are. Yeah. And these are governed by uh, and determined by forces which are not necessarily looking out for our own good. They prove and have proved unreliable in many a critical time. And we're seeing that in our own, in our own uh, context, right? Our government our scientific knowledge, even our democracy has begun to teeter and buckle under the weight of COVID and divisiveness. You know, Gabe's opening, you know, prayer, I just like, wow, he must have read my sermon notes because, you know, those the way that he expressed it just kind of, you know, in, 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 in 30 seconds, what I'm spending 30 minutes on, he, he really captured that in the essence uh, of that. Yeah. We have too long put our hope in, we have overly depended on artificial, right? Human-made ideas and things and organizations. And indeed, we've got many splinters, many injuries as a result. The third avenue was uh, religion, or, or the commander tries to move on to disparage God as a potential hope. He first mocks Hezekiah for claiming to depend on God when he's trying to do some reform, right? He, takes down the, the high places because the Israelites weren't worshiping right. He centralizes worship in the temple in Jerusalem. And, and he's saying, you don't really believe in God. Look at what you're doing. It's a political move. Right? He's, he's kind of making this argument that he attacked, that Hezekiah attacked his own religious system. And he's saying this within earshot of anybody who will uh, can understand him. So he's trying to strike at the heart of religion, knowing that the Israelites are very, supposed to be a theocratic uh, nation. Uh, and, and he keeps emphasizing that, uh, rightfully points out that the gods and religions of numerous other nations fail to protect against the onslaught of the Assyrian army. And then he has an interesting twist in verse 25, right? claiming that it was indeed God himself, God of the Israelites, who had instructed Sennacherib to march against his country and destroy it. This is an intriguing boast because God did use pagan nations to mete out divine punishment on the breach of the covenant between himself and his people. So Babylon is going to eventually overthrow uh, Judah. And it was Assyria that took down 
um, the uh, the northern kingdom of Samaria slash uh, Israel, right? And they had defeated them and then repatriated them. And, and Israel, the northern kingdom, never recovered. They never became a nation uh, again, right? All this to point out that merely claiming the name of God, I put my hope in God, I put my hope in His promises, I put my hope in the Bible, that doesn't mean that we really have done so, that we are really uh, trusting God, we're really putting all of our, our uh, hopes and dreams in God's uh, deliverance. So you know, it's so easy to depend on past practices, on our activity, on our heritage, on our culture, right? God's watched over America for 200 plus years. The one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice. You know, we can cite those things and we can even mean it, but it's different to actually put our hope fully in uh, the right uh, thing, right? the right object of hope. The last avenue or common avenue of hope to draw from this passage is this uh, this idea of what I'm calling reasonability or compromise slash negotiation or working things out. Right? When a problem arises, some of us are so good at or accustomed to and successful at figuring things out. We, we kind of, you know, compromise or we kind of strike a deal. We, we kind of, you know, make do. But it might be at the expense right, of, of our convictions or our principles or our commitments to settle for something because it, you know, otherwise there's no more effective option, right? So the commander sounds like he's trying to negotiate in good faith, but it, to me it's more of a ploy to demoralize the hearers within the city gates of Jerusalem, right? There's this whole like, please don't, you know, the, the officials are shaking in, the, in, the, in, their, in their sandals, <laughs> whatever they're wearing, and they're saying, please don't speak in. Hebrew, because we don't want you to, other people to hear. We want to negotiate privately. And the, this field commander goes, no, I'm bilingual. I'm going to talk in, 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 Hebrew, in Aramaic, and uh, I'm going to talk in Hebrew, and I'm going to, you know, just uh, strike fear in, in everybody. They should hear this as well. Uh, and, and so what he's doing is, ultimately, he's saying that there's only one choice, right? Life or death, Right? If you want to survive, you got to surrender. That's the only option. If you want to die, if you want to you know, drink your own filth or eat your own filth and drink your own urine, uh, if you want to um, uh, be humiliated, right? if you want to starve, et cetera, et cetera, right? You then, yeah, sure, fight against us, but you won't make it. Uh, he's, he's really kind of yeah, dismantling this idea that... Um, there's any other hope. It's a, you know, he extends it. So I'll give you 2,000 horses if you show me that you, you guys can, can ride them, right? It's, a, it's like a fake glimmer. It's a, it's a flash in the pan, but it's not genuine hope. There's no real intention that they're going to allow them to, um, you know, keep their own land, right? He says, we'll, you guys can enjoy your own cistern and your own fields and all that kind of stuff until we feel like we have to take you somewhere else. Right? So, it, again, it, it's just kind of, I think, his way to um, show that um, there is no hope. Right? There is uh, no hope. So let's do a quick review 
of the avenues of hope, if we could put up slide four again. Um, these are worldly wise and uh, effective, but here they are uh, empty. The resources, yeah. How much of your hope for the future, right? literally, might be in like resources, like what you have, what you own, what you possess, what's in your bank account, what's in your portfolio. Um, allies, maybe you have this incredible network of support and, and, and LinkedIn is, you know, you're one of the biggest LinkedIn pages, whatever. You know, you have that as, you know, that's that's my fallback. If, if I lose my job, if I have health issues, if I, you know, uh, find myself isolated, these are the people that will come to my rescue. Religiosity, I've been going to church for all my life. I've been doing this, I've been doing that. You know, I've helped people. You know, God's going to, should remember that. Right? And I, I believe in God, right? I, I give money to the church. There's many things that we can say about it. And yet, when we look at it, we are not right, really putting our hope in God. Reasonability, right? You can, you know, finagle, you can kind of position, you can, you can kind of work these things out. Uh, but it's not real uh, hope in God. So what the uh, uh, field commander is doing is actually pointing out the utter hopelessness of all these avenues. So he, he kind of did, did my work for me, I think. <laughs> By the process of elimination, he's saying he, the only thing is to submit to Sennacherib. There, there's really no other hope. It's kind of like Dante's warning in the poem Inferno, uh, emblazoned on the entrance gate to hell, abandon every hope, uh, all who enter uh, here. That's what the commander wants the Israelites to feel, no hope. And like I said, in a sense, he's right. These avenues of hope are dead ends. Each of them and many others like them will uh, disappoint. And again, I'm beating a, a, a very familiar drum, right? We're feeling this keenly in 2020 and 2021. Our medical and scientific resources couldn't prevent 490,000 COVID deaths and counting. Uh, our world allies couldn't keep America from almost imploding, suffering mass casualties during a capital insurrection almost. Our religiosity has failed to keep the country united as Christians find themselves thick in the fray of national conflict. That's just some of the examples, right? At bottom, the Bible agrees with the Assyrian commander. There's really no hope in the world. But the alternative, right? The Hezekiah hope, the real hope, Right? That inspires endurance, that endurance inspired by hope. That is also uh, sometimes right, not that attractive uh, to us. I don't know if it's hard. I don't know if it seems kind of, you know, um, unpopular or undesirable. You know, Hezekiah, uh, he doesn't succumb to the Assyrian invaders. His hope had always been and remains in the God of Israel. And not in just in a religious sense, right? Hezekiah did more than just the rituals and the sacrifices. Hezekiah cried out to God. Hezekiah sought a personal audience with God and awaited a personal answer from the Lord. This is a great uh, picture in the next chapter, 19, where he gets this letter uh, further um, kind of threatening uh, Jerusalem. And he spreads it out and he prays over the letter. He asks God, read this. <laughs> doesn't say that but you know the implication is see what what they're saying god you have to act i i only put my hope in you you're my only uh option right uh, and uh, god answered very specifically even narrowly 
and what he was going to do. So from that next chapter, verse 6, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you've heard. Those words uh, with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, I'm going to put such a spirit in him that when he hears a certain report, he'll return to his own country and there I will have him cut down with the sword. You know, God's plan was to draw Sennacherib away from Jerusalem back to Assyria, whereupon he would be assassinated. Right? This is the hope that Hezekiah and the people are supposed to commit themselves to. Now, if you're like me, I think this is so far-fetched. <laughs> what? You're going to do what? You're going to put a spirit in him so that he's going to hear a report, he's going to retreat or withdraw, and then, you know, we're talking about the most powerful man in the world at that time. He's going to have bodyguards. He's going to have security protocol. It's been not impossible to get at him, let alone kill him. Right? And even Sennacherib is, is removed, is out of the picture. What about the huge Assyrian army? And, and the worst thing is there's not much details. There's no way for uh, um, Hezekiah to confirm this. Right? There's no like specifics about which like foreign large troop movement will there be. Right? What's the timing of the withdrawal? Will it happen in, in, in one month, in three years? You know? And there's no details of the assassination. Who's going to do it? And, and how skilled are they? You know, are, they, are they Navy SEALs or are they the Green Beret? You know, there's, nothing, there's nothing, there's not that kind of detail, right? Yeah. And yet Hezekiah is expected to set out on this avenue of hope. He's supposed to put all his hope eggs in that one basket against all odds, contrary to con conventional wisdom, not to mention... You know, very little in terms of detail. Yeah. But as I thought about it, I go, this actually is kind of the nature of Christian hope. You know, we typically don't get a lot of details, right? We aren't told the exact time when uh, God makes, God will make good on a promise. We aren't provided much by the way of resources uh, or strategy, right? Uh, it's just kind of a, a big, don't worry about it. Right. Uh, put your hope in me. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the main feature of Christian hope is simply that uh, God is the hope. Right. He's the one we should put our hopefully in. Yeah. He promises to make a way, even though we don't know what that way is. He guarantees that His purposes will be accomplished, although we don't get much explanation. He pledges himself to see to our ultimate good, even if we're not sure what that good is. He averts that he is in control and that he will take care of everything, even though we don't know when and how. Um, so to me, it suggests that the outcome or the result or the situation uh, or the thing that we're called to put our hope in is that's not the key idea. That's not where we should put our hope. Our hope is in God in God's person, in his character, in his power, in his trustworthiness, in his promises, in his faithfulness. Yeah, and that's why, um, at least to me, much of what God promises uh, can seem implausible or at least risky, right? This is a risky proposition that Hezekiah doesn't do anything but wait until God does this kind of really uh, crazy plan. And I'm wondering if um, it's intentional on God's part. That if it's too easy, if it's too sensible, if it's too rational, if it's too understandable, too doable, I would tend to put my hope in that thing, in that promise, in that outcome, in that 
That would be where I put my hope in, and I would take my eyes off of God. But God says, just keep your eyes on me, and you'll see that um, I'm going to make this uh, work out. Right? So, um, you know, these other avenues of hope that that the, that I've, we've been talking about, they're, they're realistic, they're achievable, they're, they're desirable. And God's promise seems you know, pretty out there. So unless we have a robust, vibrant hope in God himself, God directly, um, I think that, you know, we tend to kind of you know, get go back to these more practical uh, matters. Right? And I think God hides hides his hand <laughs> maybe way too often. Um, actually, in chapter 19, what happens is that the next day or that night or something, very soon, 185,000 <laughs> Assyrian soldiers are wiped out by the angel of death sent by God. Uh, thanks for telling me that this is how you're going to do it. I would have been a lot more confident if I had known that particularly. But God seems to withhold it. I don't know. I don't want to say it's intentional, but it just kind of kind of connects in my mind to this idea that our hope is really in Him and nothing else and no other other avenue. Our series catchphrase uh, is endurance inspired by hope. And endurance is one of the hardest aspects of hope, of hoping, right? But it's inherent in the idea. I read a, um, a patient, I'm sorry, I read a definition of hope by uh, a public policy commentator, um, Catherine Kirsten, uh, who stated uh, hope as a patient expectation that good will ultimately prevail. Let me read that again. A patient expectation that good will ultimately prevail. So you get that word patient, expectation, right? There's a, there's a waiting, there's the endurance there. I actually would Christianize that by replacing good with God and then expanding it a little. So uh, to me, Christian hope is a patient expectation that God will, that God will ultimately prevail for our good. Yeah. So, you know, God's in control. Look to him for hope. But that hope will result in our goodness, uh, something good for us. That's um, kind of in a nutshell. I, I kind of like uh, thinking of it in that way. So there we see patience, waiting, endurance. Yeah, there's no getting around the timing issue. Hope requires waiting. Uh, sometimes it's for a short while. Other times it's for a very too long of a time. But again, hope in God protects us from being enslaved to the immediate or the urgent solution. We can persevere. We can endure if our hope is in God alone. All right, I confess, I actually found that definition while I was searching for some illustrations. Guess what? Yeah, you guessed it, maybe. Lord of the Rings quotes, Lord of the Rings quotes, yeah. yeah I was thinking, what are the main themes of you know, Tolkien's trilogy? You know, Good and evil, that's strong. Death and immortality, fate and free will, danger of power. You know, even Christianity kind of works its way in, right? Tolkien himself identified death and immortality as the main theme of, of um, Lord of the Rings. But I'm going to practice what is, uh, like, in my mind, taboo in, in, the, in interpreting the Bible. Instead of authorial intent, <laughs> I'm going to do reader response. When I read Lord of the Rings, right, less on the, book, uh, less on the movies, more on the books, what I find is that actually hope and despair is really kind of from beginning to end. Right? That, to me, governs it. So sorry. Uh, uh, Mr. Tolkien, I'm going to take it a different uh, direction. Right? Uh, so, for example, um, uh, slide six, right? Uh, there's this uh, quote from in the Two Towers book where after Gandalf helps K 
King Theoden of Rohan recover his mental health, they uh, look to the east, right? Because that's where all the actions happen. That's where Frodo and Sam are. And Gandalf says this, right? That way lies our hope, where sits our greatest fear. Doom hangs still on a thread, yet hope there is still if we can but stand unconquered for a little while. What a great line. Right? And you see that hope and despair, like, you know, we're very close. It's a, it's a very thin thread. We're going to be conquered by it. But if we can hold our ground, if we can keep our hope, um, it's still there. Right? That, that kind of idea. Um, you know, in the cinematic version uh, of, of Two Towers, you know, th there's this big fight, right? Helm's Deep. Uh, and, and, and all the, the 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 people of Rohan are cowering, expecting the the, the armies of Saruman here um, to overwhelm them and kill them, right? And you know they're getting ready, they're waiting. Um, Aragorn ends up comforting a Rohan lad, too young to really fight. He's wearing chainmail, and you know, we can't even you know can't see beyond his helmet. He's brandishing his heavy sword, and there's fear in the boy's eyes. And he says that the older men have said it's hopeless. We're all going to die tonight. And Aragon, you know, uh, says to him, there is always hope, right? And then right on cue, the elves show up uh, unexpectedly to lend a helping hand, rewarding Aragon's hope in hope. Yeah, that's not in the book, so it's not as authoritative as me, but, you know, I, I am not averse. I'm not against using it if it helps <laughs> my message, uh, hopefully. Yeah, hope and despair to me are all, all over the place. These dual narratives. Um, the, the kind of the sense that the men of the West and all, all that is being overwhelmed by, uh, you know, Sauron's forces. But these two tiny, you know, halflings, Frodo and Sam, they are journeying to, to Mount Doom, right? They're, they're going to try to try to fix it all, right? It, it, it toggles back and forth, you know, if you, if you read the book. So in my mind, that's hope and despair, hope and despair, hope and despair. Right? Um, let me go back to Catherine Kirsten. Uh, the fellowship confronts its trials with hope, not despair. This is why its quest ultimately succeeds. Despair paralyzes man's powers, sapping his energy and creativity, while hope inspires strength and resolve. Likewise, hope liberates human beings from the otherwise overwhelming distractions of fear and uncertainty. It gives them courage to pursue a great goal and to strive to become worthy of it. Center of the American experiment. Um, Gabe's opening paragraph in his prayer. Right? <laughs> My final geek point about Lord of the Rings is a footnote from an apparently an earlier draft of a book of the book by by Tolkien that they found. He apparently gave uh, heroic names to Frodo and Sam. Right? If you could put up slide eight. I'm not going to pronounce these elv elvish names, but uh, look at what they mean. Frodo's name. Right means endurance. Uh, this game name that's given. Frodo it means endurance beyond hope. Hey, that's almost our title. And then Sam's is hope unquenchable. Right? Even Aragorn is given uh, was given a name as a child. And uh, I can pronounce that one. And Estelle hope. So you know the the first two names don't appear in the book in, in the final draft published version. So you know, but I, I want to argue that Tolkien was thinking uh, along. Uh, in those terms, right? That you know, they do represent this kind of unquenchable hope, this endurance beyond hope, this uh, kind of hope in uh, something good. Of course, I, I need to bring it back to God, right? Bring it back to God. And that's Hezekiah. That's Hezekiah. He doesn't, he's not 
really asked to put his hope in uh, strategy, in, in, in uh, allies, in his negotiation ability. He's, you know, uh, Isaiah, the prophet at the time, and, and God himself says, yeah, put your hope uh, in God, right? And, you know, I think Hezekiah is inspirational. He, he, he gains confidence in what God says. He's secure in God. Hezekiah will wait it out. He will endure. He will not give up or compromise. Perhaps he knows God too well. This is just like God to bring about these kinds of global sea changes, right? In an unexpected and a miraculous, even surgical way and purposeful, right? So not only would Assyria be dealt a fatal blow, but Israel would be delivered, right? Hezekiah's fame would increase, right? And the hope um, of the people uh, would burgeon uh, towards God. So let me close with Second Chronicles 32, yeah, verse 7. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, because the king of Assyria and the vast army with him, for there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord of God to help us and fight our battles. And the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah, the king of Judah, said. Now, um, the Lord our God, we have the Lord our God uh, with us. That's our hope. Let's pray. Take a few minutes to uh, reflect and pray <clears throat> of what the Lord may have spoken to us.